The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, November 1st, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We've got a terrorist attack in New York, which I will talk about in the spiel. We've got taxes roiling their way through Congress. We've got the ongoing Russia investigation. Now, here are the most viewed stories from New York Magazine. One, Andy Dick fired for sexual harassment. Two, HBO released a statement responding to Jeremy Piven sexual harassment allegations. Then, son about Netflix. Four, six women, including Olivia Munn, accused director Brett Ratner of sexual harassment. Then uh, six, Chris Brown's new album explained, no, nothing about specifically sexual harassment, but he's an abuser. Seven, Kevin Spacey accused of groping filmmaker Tony Montana, sexually harassing young actor at London Theater. So uh, seven of the top seven, five of them about sexual harassment. This is a moment where we are talking about sexual harassment and the story that popped to the top of my mind for obvious reasons wasn't even one of them. It was about the NPR executive who stepped down because of sexual harassment allegations. The uh, senior vice president for news, Michael Oreskes, resigned. Uh, The Washington Post broke a story that 15 years ago or more, he kissed and thrust his tongue into the mouths of two women who were meeting with him, interested in a job in the New York Times. Cut to more recently, there were allegations within NPR that he harassed some young workers. Now this, I I have something to say. I have something of interest to say about this not just to bemoan the facts and talk about the culture and note that this is a moment where this is all coming to a head. I would just want to compliment Rebecca Hersher, who still works for NPR, and she talked to reporter David Folkenflik about her meeting with Oreskes, and uh, he played a clip of that, her going on the record. Here was that. Went to the train station, and I called my best friend, and I cried on the phone with her, and then I went home, and I cried to my boyfriend. It, it felt very... Uh, it undercut my confidence in a way that was surprising to me. But it wasn't that quote about her reaction to this dinner where he talked about sex and relationships and everything except her getting a job at NPR. It wasn't that that stuck out. It was this quote, which uh, Folk and Flick reported in written form. This is Hersher saying, from my point of view, every little thing that he or I said pointed to the relative difference in power. Like he's the one with power. He's the one who gets to decide what we talk about, and I'm trying to keep up. There's just a consciousness in that that I don't think we saw 10, 20 years ago. In fact, the women who came forward with allegations that the Washington Post reported on about Oreskes' time with the New York Times, they talked about how it stunted their careers or stayed with them. Not that Hersher wasn't saying that this wasn't uh, the kind of thing that would stay with her forever, but it was knowing in the moment that this was about a power imbalance. It's just a consciousness, I think, that's new, that is beneficial, and that is, in fact, a result of all the discussions that we're having. What I'm saying is we're going to get a lot more creepy dudes exposed, but we're also going to get a way to process this and a way to talk about this, not just structural institutional ways, but ways for people who are actually victimized by harassment to talk about it that I think will lead to a slightly better situation in the future. That is my optimistic view. Perhaps a slightly better situation in the future. Speaking of very slight optimism, New York's reaction to the latest terrorist attack. That will be in the spiel. But first, to Icelandic politics. And why not? Iceland's a fascinating place. It's a micro-state. 
Political scientists call the land of 300,000 people just that. They are progressive, but they are also proud Vikings. And I talk to their number one pirate. Iceland's a cold place, as the name would connote, but it's a pretty with it place. They have great human rights. Elections are free, open, and fair. People really feel that they have a stake in things, and this has informed recent politics in Iceland. After the world financial crisis, the Icelandic people got extremely mad at their government. It was called the Pots and Pans Revolution, and their prime minister was tossed. The government lasted for a little while, and then a new prime minister was also forced to resign after the Panama Papers revealed the massive amounts of wealth that he and his wife kept offshore. At that point, the Icelandic people threw fish and yogurt at the parliament building. Why fish and yogurt? Because those are the only foods in Iceland that cost less than $20 a pound. The parliament building, by the way, is the all thing. It is the longest continuously operating parliament in the world. And in 2016, the Pirate Party held the third most seats in parliament. 10 out of 63 seats. Now, there was just an election in Iceland a couple days ago, and the pirate party lost some seats. And maybe a reason for this is that the head pirate, Brigitte John's daughter, was not on the ballot this time around. John's daughter is a digital activist, a poet, and I found out when I met with her a few months ago, she's a politician who manages to be both idealistic and savvy. Maybe savvy is not the right word. She's more no bullshit. And what I wanted to know from her was how can the lessons of Iceland, where an idealistic party like the Pirate Party gain some traction, how can that be translated to, I don't know, a place like the United States? Maybe it's just easier in Iceland where, sure, there's populism, but it's populism tempered by generally accepting the rest of the world. Maybe suspicion and rumor don't hold sway in a society where most people do know each other or at least aren't separated by more than one or two degrees. John's daughter was game to talk about it all, and here is that conversation. Okay, so let me uh, set a level and you tell me who you are and uh, are you the founder of the Pirate Party? I'm one of the many founders of the Pirate Party. We were around, I don't know, six, uh, ten, twenty, don't remember. Uh, my name is Birgitta Hansdottir. I am a poetician. How'd you name it? Who named the Pirate Party the Pirate Party? Well, we were inspired by the Swedish Pirate Party. They, the Swedes had uh, two MEPs, members of the European Parliament, and uh, we really liked a lot of the policy on sort of uh, human rights and cyber. To the people of Iceland, is this an organizing principle? They really are so impassioned about issues like this, or do they care more about fisheries? So, no, what people really care about and what gets me up in the morning, it's not the fisheries. It is not, you know, housing system. It is uh, to enable people to be a real force of change. And you cannot do that if you don't have access to information, if you do not have access to democracy, if you don't have access to privacy. And so people, you know, they, after the crisis in Iceland, they became very much aware of uh, and yearned for uh, a way to keep those that they trust to look after their interests accountable uh, and to have influence on what they're doing. 
this is what people like like about the Pirate Party is that we are focusing on empowerment to be sort of like Robin Hood of power, where you take the power from the powerful and you give it back to the people. So when you were polling before the last election and uh, you got about 15% of the votes, so you have about 15% of the seats in the all thing, all thing, the uh, oldest parliament in the world, uh, 15 at, sorry, 10 out of 63 seats, but you were polling as the number one party, uh, 35% in a fractured parliamentary system. It was the number one party. You didn't quite do that. Did you believe the polls at the time? What did you think of the polls at the time? Oh, I never believed the polls. Uh, I always knew that this was a way for people to protest. But in the end, people are, you know, for some bizarre reason, always afraid of change. And uh, in many ways, uh, I was thankful that we did not get a majority. We were not ready for it because we're a brand new party. When in uh, America and other countries, they looked at and reported on the popularity of the Pirate Party, it was put in the context of a populist trend throughout the world. Populism could mean so many things, but did you, how did you see yourself, if at all, as part of the trend? And how did you see yourself as apart from that international trend of populism? Well, I think uh, this is a very wrong analytics uh, in general, and it's a huge simplification. So you have, uh, you know, people from all these different scopes uh, that are calling for more empowerment. And then you put it right next to Le Pen and yeah. Trump, which is insane. Uh, there are other movements that have been able to capture people's trust and imagination empowerment, like uh, Podemos did. You have it both with left and ring uh, right-wing uh, sort of focus. It started in Iceland, and then it went to Spain, and then it went to to Egypt and Tunis, and, and you see it in Hong Kong. Is that a populist movement? No, and I think it's wrong to call it a populist movement because it's always to paint it negative that people are, uh, you know, demanding to get uh, to be more in control over their societies. It, it seems to me that much of what you're talking about would require on the part of the voter, I would just flatly say more uh, intelligence and knowledge than the average at least American voter now has. Now, I know in Iceland, the people are very civically engaged and turnout is what, approaching 80% for a national election. Mm -hmm. It's kind of amazing. Is it scalable? Is that idea of uh, your definition of populism as something more subtle than just being angry at the powerful. Because I think that that emotion won the election and Bernie got some of that emotion, Bernie Sanders, and he would compare himself to Trump in that way. But it seems like you're saying that the comparison is so weak, it's only based on that one emotion. You have to look deeper into the principles and the philosophies and the and the um, policies. And I don't know if a huge country like America can is is up for that. Of course it is, and you see it happen on state levels. Uh, there are very progressive states, and then there are states that are, you know, stuck in the belief of creationism. And, and I do think that, you know, there are We should no interrupt and say you've spent time in West Virginia and Kentucky. Yes, uh, and uh, I also lived in, uh, you know, New Jersey, and, and uh, I've traveled all over the states and have relatives there and friends. And uh, so I follow very closely what's going on there, and I'm deeply concerned about this. I call it the divided states of America. The problem that I'm seeing in, in the United States is this decline everywhere when it comes to education, when it comes to information, engagement, and people feeling that they are that they have future. But does know? Iceland just have that more? I mean, it doesn't have disengagement. 
I, the population of Iceland is smaller than the population of Vermont or Alaska or Wyoming. So it's maybe a little easier. But I guess my question is, is what you've done uh, scalable at, at all to the United States, given all the factors that you mentioned? Yes, absolutely. You know, it does not take a lot to uh, get a tipping point of um, change of opinion if you have information. That is why I'm such an advocate for accessibility to information. And I'm not only talking about news. I'm just talking about information that helps societies to remain honest. When it comes to information, it is just like, you know, here in Iceland, not that long ago, it was, you know, you'd be beaten up if you were gay, right? Now, it didn't take that long time until you had a critical mass in uh, recognizing that this was just, you know, everybody had the right to be whoever they wanted to be. And then eventually we had the first gay prime minister in the world. And nobody talked about it. Nobody mm -hmm. cared. They talked about this individual as a, you know, her achievement as a politician, you know, for everybody. A lot of what you're saying depends on if we give people the right information, they'll eventually come to the right conclusions. And I used to believe that a lot more than I do now. Mm -hmm. And I read the core principles of your party where critical thinking is right up there near the top. And I think the second agenda item under that was essentially about that, critical thinking about your news sources and getting more information. What I've seen though, is that all of the true definition of fake news, all of these conspiracy theories and, you know, just crazy denial of what's going on is based on that very principle. They, they lure their thinkers in by saying, you need to think critically. The New York Times and the Washington Post and the gatekeepers have been lying to you. Here's the truth. And it's 180 degrees from the truth. <laughs> now, I don't know if I've just been noticing this and reporting it on my show. Maybe you don't have tons of sites like InfoWars here in Iceland. I know that in Europe, there are alternative sites, but in America, it's crazy. And some of it are fueled by bots. And you wrote that, I, th I think those core principles before all of this phenomenon existed. So have you changed your mind about that at all? Not at all. Uh, because like, you know, when I heard that the main source for news in the States was Fox News, for me, that was fake news. Yeah. You know, people actually watched this and believed some of the rhetoric there was unbelievable. And then you watch CNN, which is just as bad, just in a more fluffy way, because they are, there's so little back work and it's so one-sided. But there are also, you see this sort of like uh, horde mentality, like before the elections in Iceland, when the Pirate Party was like, there was one poll which put us really high, yeah. uh, but it was like a freak poll. And I told everybody, this is, this is not real, right? This is not going to be as, as you are writing about it. And I don't want to be a prime minister. This is not my objective. And they would still, oh, and I'm not the leader. I'm not, we do not have traditional leadership in the party. And they would always write about me. Uh, the opposite of what I told them. And everybody did, because I know it was really cool to, to sort of, you know, convince your editor that you should go to Iceland to, to write a story about the pirates uh, taking over Iceland. And, and so I'm not saying that this is as bad as fake news, but is if you allow this sort of horde mentality, and it didn't matter how much you would try to then fix it afterwards, once it was actually published, mm. you tried to amend it. And for me, it was just as bad as being on the Alex Jones show. You said you were very suspicious of uh, the, the polls that put you at number one. Was that because of instinct or, you know, in the United States, there is the poll that's released publicly. Every party has the polls. Every candidate has a polls. What's the state here? Were you doing private polls? Are there, are there like 
polling firms that work with the parties in Iceland? And do you use them? No. Well, so there are like, um, you know, Gallup in Iceland. Uh, and then there is uh, a polling function at the university. Uh, and uh, so there are various pollings and newspapers do their own polls and so forth. We've never worked with them to figure out how much we're getting in the polls. We've bought a poll every year to ask people how they want to prioritize the budget. And that's how we work with them. When we were just three in the Pirate Party last term, we had no idea why we were becoming popular. We had no idea. And every time there would be like a new poll saying that we had more following, it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's like, what's going on? <laughs> and the only thing that we could do was basically just be thankful for the trust and not really care if it went up or down. You know, we're sort of hoping it would start to go down, to be honest, because it was too much. It was overwhelming. Uh, and, and then there were all these sort of expectations that we should become experts in everything immediately and have policy on everything. And I'm totally against that. I don't think we should have policies on everything. You have, should rather have a policy on collaboration with experts because we're very much a system party. Yeah. We're, like, we're very preoccupied with the system of the fisheries rather than, you know, the fish. <laughs> so you've been very generous with your time. I have two, two more questions. Yeah. One is Julian Assange. He doesn't seem to value privacy. I know you are a WikiLeaks founder, and I know you are a supporter of Chelsea Manning and Snowden. But what about Assange? Okay, so I was not a founder of WikiLeaks, just to be clear. No, no, I know you weren't a founder, but you were an early supporter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not, I was a volunteer, and I, I, was, uh, I worked on this big leak uh, that came from, uh, at the time, Bretton Manning, now Chelsea Manning. And I worked very closely with the Suns back in 2009 and 10, and, and some other people from the organization. When it comes to WikiLeaks, you know, less words, better. I, I don't I don't recognize this as the same platform that I used to uh, volunteer for, so um, doesn't really concern me at all because it's just not the same stuff. Uh, because it was just, it just he just reshaped it in his own image. Well, it was always in his own image. It's just you know if you followed the Twitter stream on the WikiLeaks account three years ago and now, it's just it's not the same. And and you know there are it is with. Great power comes great responsibility, and no one person, and this is one thing that I criticized about WikiLeaks back in the day, is that I felt that there was, uh, there should be more horizontalism uh, about how you would uh, distribute power. And uh, we are t totally different opinions about that. You know, he, he believes in a very strong hierarchical power where uh, I believe in responsibility sharing. And my last question is this. We've talked about him a couple times, but Donald Trump, how often do you think about him? And what do you think about him? I tried to, like, just like the, the guy that's uh, the president of uh, the Philippines uh, and, you know, Kim Jong-un and, and all these different guys, I tried to uh, not think too much about them. But unfortunately, there is no way you can't think about these guys every day because they're just constantly in the news. I would like to hear more about people that are doing inspirational and courageous and important things uh, for our planet more. I would like to see just as many news about that type of politics than this soap opera that is being uh, produced for the rest of us every day. Yeah. Because it's like, it's so boring. I'm so bored with it. Other than taking up space in your brain and symbolically, has an average Icelandic person actually been affected by Donald Trump in any way? 
I don't know, you know, I, for example, me, I can't travel to the States now. I've been, you know, it was uh, a massive undertaking for me to go to the States, you know, because of my involvement with WikiLeaks. And, but I managed to, they had a really good ambassadors here, and I managed to sort of have the foreign affairs ministry in Iceland uh, deal with the Department of Justice in the States. But now it's, we don't even have ambassadors. You know, there are no ambassadors after Trump uh, took office. There is no functioning State Department. You're having like a guy going off the rails about a nuclear war and there is no proper diplomatic core, uh, you know. So there is no political vision uh, for foreign policy in the States because, you know, after reading the diplomatic cables, you know how important it is that you have a functional uh, sort of uh, foreign uh, staff. So, you know, for Icelanders, you know, it hasn't really impacted, you know, but anybody that needs to deal with uh, sort of international uh, work, which, you know, the world is bound by that, uh, are, you know, experiencing quite a bit of dif difficulties because it's just so unpredictable. You cannot rely on anything in the States anymore. You cannot, you know, and that's the problem. So, um, you know, start to think of a vision so that you can reclaim your country. All right. Thank you very much for your time. I want to be able to visit again. So. <laughs> we want you back. But just as long as you don't do the Alex Jones show. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. And now help me because I want to say your name right. Say it again and I'll try it. Birgitta Jonsdóttir. Uh, nobody can do that. So I'm thinking of changing my name to just uh, Bridget Jones. It's the same name. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And now the spiel. The terror attack in New York was greeted by New Yorkers with shock, sadness, concern, anger. But you know what? Not too much terror. This is how terrorism should be handled, with an emphasis on de-emphasizing the goals of the attackers. The Halloween parade went on. Subway stops nearby the attack were opened within hours. The three schools within steps of the attack, PS89, IS289, Stuyvesant High School, they're all open today. And you know what? Of course, all those things transpired. Some see it as a flaw of New Yorkers, but we don't tend to sentimentalize reality. There was an act. It was a terrible, horrible act, but it's no longer a threat except in the same general sense that it was a threat yesterday. So let's get on with our lives. Let's go about our business. This was the biggest loss of life in a crime that New York City has experienced since 9-11. But there were fires that killed more people, and there were other terrorist incidents, and some of them could have killed more people. There was, in fact, a car attack on Times Square. Someone was killed. Over 20 people were injured. It wasn't actually an attack. It was a drunk driver. But for the motivation of the driver, it was very similar to what happened today. Guy set off a bomb in Chelsea that didn't kill too many people. People have been arrested for trying to, or having the idea to bomb the subway. And still, New York goes on. Big bad things happen in the big bad city, and not overreacting is a way of life. That extends, by the way, to the hashtag NYC Strong. I saw that on Twitter. Get that hashtag the hell out of here. 
It's fine if Vegas wants to be strong. I think this whole idea started in Boston with Boston Strong. Do you really think New York City wants to adopt anything started in Boston? New York City didn't even want the Revolutionary War, which started in Boston, for God's sake. You know, I get it. Everyone mourns in their own way. I won't begrudge a citizen who's comforted by that particular hashtag. But I see a lot of what's going on, the most concerned people as being performative concern. I just do not connect to some of the overwrought concern as expressed by some members of the media. Jim Sciuto, CNN, fine reporter, did tweet, as a New Yorker, it's gutting to know this attack took place in the shadow of Freedom Tower. A sad moment. Huh? I do not connect to that at all. To think in this moment of the Freedom Tower, which is not even the name of the building, it's One World Trade Center, to think that that somehow makes this attack more poignant or more gutting. Eight people are dead. That's terrible. Eight dead near this tall building named for freedom, which they don't even use the name anymore. It doesn't elevate the tragedy at all to me. Maybe the reporter was trying to say it was so near the site of the 9-11 attacks. Maybe that's what he was doing. It just seems a little histrionic to me. As was this sentiment expressed by MSNBC's Willie Geist about his kids trick-or-treating on the Upper East Side last night. Two hours before, we had seen this horrible scene of carnage behind me. And now here were parents bringing their young children out in the street. Yes, to make their kids happy, but also as an act of defiance. Um, If that thought flitted across an adult's mind, fine, reasonable. But if Willie Geist were just a dad, just a guy who worked on Wall Street, just a guy who didn't have a lot of Instagram followers, who didn't feel the need to communicate to his audience just how real this is, would he really think of trick-or-treating as an act of defiance? I don't know. It seems like a calculated comment. I am probably, I'm going to say, I'm probably sounding a lot more critical than I really am. I get it. Willie Geist is in news. He's a fine communicator. He needs to communicate the mood. Maybe that puts a finger on it for some people. But to me, it's more like an attack happened on one side of town at three o'clock. The authorities say there's no connection to any other threats. Why wouldn't you experience joy on the other side of town at six o'clock? To say it's defiance or resilience, I think is to give the threat more credit than it deserves. It's horrible, but it's manageable. It's surprising in the specific, but unsurprising generally. It sucks. It sucks that this is now part of the lived reality of big Western cities. But it is a tiny, tiny threat that we mismanage by blowing it up and giving it outsized importance. Don't let a criminal in a truck dictate your life. Don't let an asshole with a warped religious grudge knock you off your game. They are called terrorists, but we have it within our power not to be terrorized. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Dan Schrader. He's really into whistleblowers, but he's even more into slide whistleblowers. Just producer Mary Wilson also favors the fishes more than the fisheries, but not always the misters more than the mysteries. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's deep into pirate culture. I found this when we executed a parlay. The gist hereby proposing that Talk Like a Pirate Day eschews the overuse of the R thing and instead focuses on presenting a new vision so that you can reclaim your country. Arr. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.